never had meetings beforehand to pre-plan how they would weave everything together. Each did their own, and they said, the Holy Spirit does the weaving. He says, we plan the speaking under the Lord, the musicians do theirs, and invariably the Spirit of God brings them together. And I listened to that program many years and always found they matched perfectly. Listening to Nick leading us this morning there in Exodus, and as it unfolded, I was thinking unto the Lord, Lord, Nick's saying everything that I'm going to say. It's just wonderful, isn't it, how the Lord brings it together so that we're all totally prepared for the Holy Spirit's impact from his word upon our lives. Friends, your church, 49 years old. That number really rang to me because, in fact, our time when we came to Cleveland was 45 years ago. At that stage when we arrived at Cleveland, your fellowship was four years old formally. Now, in fact, I know that for many years before, there'd been a Sunday school being run. So, in fact, the whole formation has been here much, much longer. But as a formal church, 49 years. And we soon got to know those who were leaders within the fellowship at that time. Leaders is not really the word. They were just the folk the Lord used as key people within the fellowship in those early days. Graham and Carol Zirk, still with us today. We just praise God for the fellowship we've enjoyed with them over all those years. There were others also, Rowley and uh, Lavinia uh, Skirman. They were ones that the Lord used mightily. And their name rings a bell to us even today because uh, Rowley's brother, Bev, out at Dolby, is still a very dear friend of ours, The Lord has still got him alive. He's 90 years plus now. And although he's very frail, he's still fearless for the gospel there in his community. Anyone who comes to their home will always know about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's still doing it in his 90s. Yes, that's Bev, who's Rolly's brother. There was also Gordon Margaret Kennedy, They were neighbours of ours down in Cleveland. And so through all these names, we felt an attachment to your fellowship, even though we were ministering down the road. And of course, there are others as well. But those were the ones who really stood out to us historically as uh, people that the Lord was using back in those early days. And so as we're thinking about what to speak on this morning... The Lord's been giving me a theme to speak in several places in recent days. And it's a theme which, in fact, I didn't know Nick was going to be leading into it, but in fact, he has. But at the beginning, you might wonder just how this all comes together. Because, in fact, my message this morning is based on Psalm 117, 117. 
And it's one that we can read very quickly because it's the shortest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 117, two verses long. Praise the Lord, all nations. Lord him, all peoples. For his loving kindness is great toward us and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. Two verses long and in the original Hebrew language, 12 words long. And so it's pretty short as far as duration is concerned. And I used to wonder as a younger believer why it was even there. The reason for that was that every statement that's made within that short reading is found somewhere else in the Psalms and somewhere else certainly throughout the whole Old Testament from Genesis through to Malachi. And so if you leave it out, in fact you haven't lost anything as far as God's revelation through the Old Testament is concerned. So I used to say, Lord, why is it even there? But then, of course, I realised that, hang on, it's there because the Holy Spirit put it there. He wants it to be there. And so there must be something unique about the placing of these words, the formation of it, which means that it's got to impact it in a way that it doesn't impact it in all the other parts of the Old Testament where these statements are made. And studying it over a fair period of time, just coming and going with it, I came to realise that in this shortest chapter in the Bible, we see God's Old Testament message summarised down to two verses. God's entire message from Genesis to Malachi, as far as the gist of it is concerned, the absolute bottom layer of it is concerned, is here in these verses. And when you look at them, you'll notice that there are two areas of teaching coming through, and there's one area of action. And this is what the Lord was trying to impact upon his Old Testament people as the essential what he required of them to believe and to practice. And friends, as these words were meant particularly for the Old Testament people of God, of course they continue on, because the Old Testament and the New Testament just dovetail together. And so they are also essentials for the New Testament people of God as well. And that, of course, means us. And I would go as far as to say that no fellowship of God's people can be what God wants them to be without the ingredients that are mentioned here. And therefore, friends, for a church facing its anniversary, well, these are things to look at. But I must confess, when I was thinking of applying this verse to you as a fellowship of people, I thought, but Lord, can I speak these words here? 
because from what I've seen of Thornlands over the years, right there from the 1970s, as long as I've known you, it seems to me you've already got them. It seems that your church has basically been based on these things right along the way. And we praise God for that. So I thought, Lord, am I only going to be telling the folk at Thornlands what they already know and what they're already living out? But then the Lord impacted to me that these are things which need to be constantly impacted upon our lives by the Holy Spirit because they can become, if we're not careful, almost just, excuse the terminology, dull statements of faith. In other words, words which we say we believe, words which we put into a statement of faith, but in fact, words which we don't really fully in our hearts and lives live out. They're things which really need to hit us constantly. This really hit me in this past week because Kay goes to a uh, KYB study. Kay, of course, my wife. I think many of you know her by name, if not by person. She goes to a KYB study. And she's got a special friend there who's been just giving her different books from the past. And she gave her one just this last Tuesday. And I've already gone through it. And it's a story, a little tiny book, written way back in the 19th century, of a man called, get his name right, Charles Wesley Robinson. Those first two names should tell you a little bit about his background. He was a, raised as a Methodist boy over in Northern Ireland, in Ulster. But he was there during the Great Revival of 1859, the Ulster Revival. And that's when he came to know Christ as his Lord and Saviour. He then went on to become a minister within one of the Methodist groupings. There were several, of course, in those early days. And then he came to Australia and he came to Brisbane. He deliberately, from Northern Ireland, felt the Lord calling him to Brisbane. And he came to Brisbane in the 1860s and into the 70s. Now remember now, Brisbane became a municipality, no longer a a, a convict settlement, Around about, what, 1840, it became a free city. And so when he arrived, Brisbane was only about 20 years old as far as a a city, well, it wasn't a city then, it was just a smallish town. As soon as he arrived, he started to preach the gospel. And they even had a meeting hall in Ann Street. Now, reading his book, it's a bit hard to get it all together, but it seems that it wasn't Albert Street uh, Wesleyan Church, as it was called back in its early days. It was another building in Ann Street in Brisbane. Now think of Brisbane as it would have been in size at that time. He regularly had congregations of 200 to 400 people. In Brisbane back then at that time, when it was only a small village. He also regularly from time to time went up to Whipswich 
on a train line that had only recently been put in. There'd been no link before uh, then. And he went up there and preached the gospel there as well. Interestingly, in Ipswich, it tended to be Wesley and Congregational together, and he came and preached the gospel, again to the same sort of numbers. 200 to 400 was a typical uh, congregation. But the thing that struck me was that, firstly, the normal response to the gospel that he preached was 50 people came to the Lord Jesus under the preaching of the gospel to 200 to 400. These were people who were responding to the gospel for the first time. I thought, Lord, you did wonderful things in those days. Lord, do it again. But there were times where the numbers of people coming to the Saviour seemed to be dropping off. And so he and the others would really go to prayer saying, Lord, what's gone wrong? How come people aren't coming to the Saviour in the numbers that they have? And they would pray and they would pray. But what they prayed is what fascinated me, and that's why I'm mentioning the story. They weren't praying, Lord, the people's hearts are getting hardened. Lord, soften the people out there. What they prayed was, Lord, we know that your word works. When your word is preached, you bring the response. The Holy Spirit is the author of the word. The Holy Spirit is the one who delivers the outcome. Therefore, if there's any blockage, it's not in the people out there, it's in us, the vessels. Lord, what's wrong in us? And they would go to prayer asking the Lord to clean the channels to make them totally available to him. And the amazing thing was, invariably, when they did, that's just what happened. The Lord's blessing flowed again. The sad thing about poor old Charles Wesley Robinson was that he even came to Australia with the beginning of consumption, as they called it, tuberculosis. And in fact, he died in his 30s a young man, but preaching the gospel to the very, very end. And friends, that struck me, that we can believe the Bible is the word of God and know it's transformed our lives and yet just forget its power in reaching out there and really just believe, well, we're just a group of people We love the Lord, we love the word of God, but as far as impacting out there, really the chances of that are minimal. Friends, if only the Lord would give us the belief in your word that uh, people in those revival times had. Yes, that great Ulster revival of 1859. You might be thinking, okay, man, This is all very nice stories, but what's it got to do with Psalm 117? The first thing I want to bring out from this psalm is the fact that it mentions a foundation that must be there for every fellowship of God's people to be effective in the Lord's hands. Verse 2, the truth of the Lord 
is everlasting. God has spoken in his word and God never lies. Therefore, his word is truly called the truth. As the Lord Jesus prayed the night before he went to Calvary, praying for his disciples, he said, sanctify them in the truth. And then he went on and defined the truth. And he said, your word is truth. God has spoken in scripture and God never lies. God's words never alter. God's words never go out of date. They are always faithful. They are always dependable in every situation. 1 Peter and chapter 1. I almost wonder if the Holy Spirit put really thoughts of Psalm 117 into Peter's mind when he was giving these words. He said, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Almost the same statement as Psalm 117. Now, having said that, what about if you try to build a fellowship of God's people on non-biblical concepts? And sadly, over the years, many, many people have tried to do just that. Those of us of the older generation will remember the old liberal movement where even preachers would say, well, you can't really believe the Bible, you know. It's got mistakes here, there and everywhere. And so basically they just copied the normal morality in society and said, that's what we've got to preach. And sadly, the church to which I belonged when I first came to know the Lord Jesus as Saviour essentially was moving in that direction. And that was the old Methodist church. And the tragic thing was that that church, which the Lord used in the 19th century, and we mentioned one of their guys in Brisbane, was the one that the Lord used more than any other for revival in Australia in the 19th century. Almost every revival Australia had, and it had plenty of them, were essentially uh, around the old Methodist church and right on to the beginning of the 20th century. But then they started to move away from the word of God and that was the beginning of the downfall. Now I mention that very practically because I came to the, know the Lord Jesus as Saviour in the Billy Graham crusade of May 1959. And when I came to the Saviour, I went to the church that I sort of had links with, although I came from a non-Christian family, and that was Kennedy Terrace Methodist Church in Red Hill here in Brisbane. That happened in May, and the Lord was very gracious, because November that year, just a few months later, remember I came from a non-Christian background, I preached my first message. And the first message I preached was at Latrobe Terrace Methodist Church in Paddington, just across Brisbane here. Well, 
The Methodist Church in those days had one good thing which had lasted right on from the Wesley's day. You see, invariably a minister in their church had two churches minimum, up to six churches within the city under his care. Out in the country they'd have even more. Which meant, of course, remember most of those churches would have two services on a Sunday. The minister couldn't be at all of them. It was impossible. And so he would have a group of local preachers, was the term they used. In other words, lay people from his church who would fill the pulpit in the churches that he couldn't be at. And of course, under their structure, that meant they needed a fair number of them. And so I went on and became a local preacher within the old Metho church. Now that opened the way not only in my own circuit to preach, but also others. Now I did a head count and worked out that I preached in about 12 Methodist churches in the western suburbs of Brisbane. In other words, in the Paddington, Red Hill, Ashgrove, Kelvin Grove, and actually down to New Farm as well. 12 of them. Only a few months ago, I was just musing on this and remembering, and because in my mind, picturing each one of these churches I'd preached at. And I said, I wonder how many of them still exist. And I did a head count, and out of the 12 that I used to preach in, two remain. Only two. The others have become art galleries, they've become people's homes. A lot of them have just been ploughed down and they've become something completely different, something secular. How come? Because sadly, that church had moved away from the supremacy of the word of God and had moved to men's ideas. They'd moved from a solid foundation to a foundation of quicksand. I use that term because... When Kay and I retired from formal ministry, right back in 2006, mind you, in the word of God, there's no such thing as retirement, we decided we wanted to do one trip together overseas. We'd never been together anywhere else, so we said, we'll go to New Zealand. And over there we went. In fact, it became the first of eight trips. We loved the place so much, particularly this time of year, when it's still cold, there's still snow everywhere, and for a Queenslander, what better for a change? And of course, we got to love Christchurch before the earthquakes. And the earthquakes came, and those beautiful buildings, thinking of the cathedral itself, we went there a couple of Sunday nights, loved the music, won't tell you about the preaching, but tragically, those beautiful buildings were destroyed. The cathedral itself was shaken up so much. In fact, I think it's still like that. They're going to have to pull it down brick by brick and rebuild it, apparently multi-million dollars cost to replace it. Some of the other churches in town were even worse. They just crashed. They just disintegrated into a heap of rubble through the earthquake. How come... How come so much destruction in Christchurch's central city and the eastern suburbs? Because the structure of the town. It has about 
one metre of solid soil, but if you go below, below that, you're into muck, into sort of mud, ooze. And so when the earthquakes came, of course all the surface broke up and the ooze came through and lost all foundation. And any building built with brick or something like that, down it came. In fact, our neighbour over at Thornside, where we live now, just two doors away, was a builder in Christchurch back in his working days. And he said trying to build buildings in those eastern suburbs was almost impossible. He said if you went more than a metre down with your foundations, you were into this ooze. And so there it was. Foundation of quicksand. And the buildings couldn't stand And friends, churches that go this way collapse long term. And friends, that's been historic right through. We're still seeing it, I think, even today. The foundation, the word of God. Friends, that must be there to keep us secure in the Lord. But that's only part of it. Notice verse 2 has got another element. For his loving kindness is great toward us. There it's telling us the centre. The foundation is the word of God. The centre. The centre of God's Old Testament message. I'm looking at Nick with a little smile in the face because to some extent he's already been telling you. The foundation of God's Old Testament message here, the centre I should say, is the message of God's loving kindness. God's loving kindness. And it's great toward us. Now, how do you put a definition on this term, loving kindness? God's loving kindness in the Old Testament is God's mercy to undeserving people to the extent that he brings them into a covenant with himself so that he is their God and they become his people. Old Testament terminology. That's what God's loving kindness is all about. In other words, taking people who don't deserve it and bringing them into relationship with himself. But notice how Psalm 117 words it. His loving kindness is Great toward us. Now, making that as literal as possible, it's saying, for his loving kindness is powerful upon us. His loving kindness is powerful upon us. And when you try to put that into a word picture, the one that comes across clearest to me is like a macadamia nut. And when you want to break the thing, you need almost a sledgehammer to get through that tough exterior to get into the uh, kernel of the seed. That's just what God does. You might think, well, God reaching out to human beings in loving kindness, surely that would just melt their hearts and they would just want to grasp it, a God who is love. But that's not how it works. You see, our rebellion against God, our sinfulness is such that in fact we put a wall between us and God. The one thing we don't want is God to rule us, 
because I want to be in charge, thank you, Lord. I want to be boss of my own life. I want to run my show. And so, God, I want to know that you're love, but as a God of love, I want you to just stay over there and I'll run my show here, thank you. God's loving kindness is such that, in fact, he breaks through that rebellion, that tough exterior of sin, which, in fact, makes us run away from God rather than be naturally drawn to him. And he breaks through our rebellion. He overcomes it. And then as we really see him as he is and we see ourselves as we are, then we're able to come to know him in a personal, beautiful way. The word of God is so explicit in every word the Holy Spirit has given. It is always there for a reason. The Holy Spirit doesn't just, as it were, give you general thoughts and you put it into words. The Holy Spirit gave the precise wording here because every word is important. His loving kindness is powerful upon us. But that is the Old Testament terminology. When we think into New Testament terms, God's loving kindness, in fact, is fully seen in his grace. That is the New Testament term. In fact, when you think of loving kindness, you then think of grace as being loving kindness really filled out to its fullness. But then if you want to really see grace, you don't have to look at words, you look at a person. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is, in fact, the embodiment of grace. In other words, the absolute fullness of loving kindness in the Old Testament. And if you want the focus to continue on, as it were, from the broad lens of loving kindness to grace, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you want to see the light in its absolute fullness, its point, you go to Calvary. It's Calvary where we see the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ fully revealed. The loving kindness of God in the Old Testament in its absolute focal point. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his death on Calvary. So here, two essentials for a people of God. The foundation, the word of God. The centre, the gospel of loving kindness, Old Testament. The gospel of grace in the New Testament. Essentially the same thing. But that's only verse 2. And we've only mentioned these areas of teaching, of reality, as far as we believers are concerned. Notice there's also a word of action. That's in verse 1. Praise the Lord, all nations. Lord him, all peoples. I say, well, what does that mean? That's different from what I'm just reading there. Notice the wording. Now remember, these words are meant to be sung by Israeli people, Hebrew people, in praise to the Lord. But notice the words they're using. Praise the Lord, all nations. Not all Hebrew people. 
In fact, in the Old Testament, the term that's used there is the word that's almost universally used of Gentile nations, not of Jewish people. Gentile nations. In other words, not of us, but of them out there. And that's the call coming forth here. Praise the Lord, all nations. In other words, it's meant to go out to those who don't know the Lord Jesus as a saviour. This is speaking of outreach to the lost, and that should be the outcome of it. People out there who don't know the saviour coming to know him. But that's not the end of it. The way in which verse 1 puts it, praise the Lord all nations, in other words, the uttermost parts of the earth, Lord him all peoples. Now that word peoples isn't used many times at all in the Old Testament. A couple of places it is used in speaking of the Jewish people, the Israelis, the Hebrews. But it's used more of speaking of the surrounding nations, of the Ammonites, the Moabites and the other ites who sort of surrounded Israel. In other words, in singing this song, the people of Israel are saying, praise the Lord, all you people way out there in the Gentile nations, and praise the Lord, you our neighbours as well, right on our doorstep, but who aren't part of us. Actually, it screamed to me, Acts 1.8. The gospel going out, but here it's actually stated in sort of reverse form, coming into the closer centre of Jerusalem, finally. And so here we're seeing God's primary task for his people spelled out so clearly. Now remember, this was a task the Lord gave to the Israeli people right from their foundation. We see this in Genesis 12, when God was calling Abram. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. But notice the Lord didn't end there. It went on. In you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. God was saying, Abram, I'm starting with you and with Sarah. Out of you down the road will come tribes, a large family. Out of that will come a nation. But he says, I'm not finishing with you just as a nation. He said, from there, all the families of the earth. And that was God's mandate to Israel right from its foundation. The tragedy thing was, they missed it. They so often thought that this is a message just for us, just for us, and you Gentiles, stay out there. I think a classic example of how the Lord tried to broadside this is the uh, message through Jonah. When the Lord said to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, who were classed really in Jewish eyes as the worst of the baddies in that generation. And Jonah's reaction was, of course, sorry, Lord, not me. 
and he decided to go the other direction. And the Lord really put the heavies on him, using a rather large fish to uh, do the task, and ended up with Jonah going to Nineveh and preaching a message of repentance and seeing a response. The city did repent for that generation or so. But Jonah's reaction is the sad thing. Here he is, preaching God's message of repentance to these Gentile people, and he's doing it under compulsion. He doesn't want to do it. And in the end, he's very upset that the Lord actually had people respond to it. Yes, as far as he was concerned, this message was for us and not for them. And yet God had given that charge right from the very beginning through Abram. And here he is in Psalm 117, iterating it yet again. As when you go to Isaiah, it's mentioned over and over and over and over again. Because then we think of the Lord Jesus after his resurrection. Remember the command that came from the lips of the risen Lord Jesus in that period from his resurrection to his ascension many, many times? Mark puts it in the simplest way. Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. In other words, God's blueprint for the Old Testament people of God had as its outcome outreach to the lost, to the lost nations round about, the Gentile nations. And God's blueprint for us, precisely the same to go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. Well, that might seem to be all that we can get out of Psalm 117. But there's a focus behind each one of them that I think we really need to bring out. A focus which brings all of these three aspects together. And friends, this has got to be the focus of every fellowship of God's people. We go firstly to scripture, that one, which is our foundation. Well, the Lord Jesus spoke about this in John 5 and 39, when he said, the scriptures testify about, I'm sure you know the last word there, me. And remember, the Lord Jesus there is speaking about Genesis to Malachi. The New Testament hasn't been given yet. One Bible study I would love to have been able to attend because we know it was only for two people. Yes, Cleopas and his friend, they're on Resurrection Day when they were doing their journey to Emmaus. And this stranger, so they thought, had met up with them and late in the day he took them to the Old Testament scriptures. It was the risen Lord Jesus And he explained to Cleopas and his friends from the scriptures, and when you go into Luke's gospel there, it mentions all the different phases of the scriptures, the different style of scripture the Lord had given in the Old Testament. And the Lord Jesus showed how every one of them pointed to him. All the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, finds its fulfilment, finds its focus in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
All scripture points to Christ. What about this centre, the message of love and kindness, the gospel of grace? Well, there we know. It's, well, the Lord Jesus himself is the embodiment of it, of God's grace. And here I thought that Nick was going to steal my thunder completely because I had a verse here to bring to you. John 1.14 The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father and here it comes. Full of grace and truth. And of course, a couple of verses later on, the Lord Jesus, I should say John's Gospel, states it again. Grace and truth. And notice, grace and truth are the two highlights of Psalm 117. Yes, Christ is the focus of God's grace. And when we outreach the gospel to other people, do we take it out sort of in a way where we say, oh, we'll give them medical care, we'll give them education, we'll give them all these different things? Well, sometimes we've got to do that just to get into these countries. But friends, if that is the focus of what we're doing, we're, I'm very sorry, we're on the wrong agenda. The agenda that the Lord has given us is to take the message of the gospel to these people. In other words, to introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's got to be the focus of outreach as well. In other words, all three elements find their focus in the Lord Jesus. Psalm 117 is essentially a psalm about the Saviour, looking forward to him. So friends, as a fellowship, I know that you basically do have these focuses along the way. I know that you love the word of God. I know you love the gospel of grace. And I know that you've got a burden for people around the world who don't know the Saviour. But friends, never allow it just to become, as it were, just part of our belief. Let it be the driving force of everything you do so that the Spirit of God just impels you to say, yes, Lord, this word must impact me constantly. Lord, the gospel of grace must be just filling my heart all the time, the difference the Lord Jesus has made in my life and can make in the lives of others. And Lord, give me the ability, give me the burden to take this message out there to people who need it so much. The Lord's done this for you in 49 years. May there be even more in the 50th and the 50 years to come. If the Lord tarries. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this fellowship here at Thornlands who love your word, who love the Lord Jesus Christ and have a passion for those who don't know him. But Lord, we pray that you would be even increasing this within our hearts and our lives so that it becomes truly the driving force of everything we are and everything we do. Lord, may we never take these things for granted. May they never become, just as it were, statements of faith. 
but Lord, may they be truly the driving force of all we are and all that we do. O Lord, continue to give us a constant vision of our Lord Jesus Christ, the author, the finisher of our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.